it's funny that I read somewhere like Instagram is what you get when you have a generation of people who are raised whose you know main imagery was advertising that they have seen throughout their lives. And so we do come from an earlier era and we do come from an earlier kind of version of reality, which was not so self-improving as today's is. And frankly, a lot less competitive, a lot less precarious. Your life was a little bit less dependent on appearing a certain way or being a certain person or being from a certain background, kind of a hyper-educated background like me and Mark Zuckerberg. And so I understand why you would want to, in this world you know, that we now live in, accentuate the positive, as it were, and live that way. But in many ways, it's a diminishment of your community. Strong opinions about the state of the world we live in, a world where we post photos to social media in order to share our lives with other people. And often those photos are meant to make ourselves and our lives look better than they actually are. But online photo sharing wasn't always a way of flexing to all your friends about how great your life is. And the person we just heard talking about it, well, she should know, because that was Katarina Fake, founder of the original photo sharing app and Web 2.0 darling, Flickr. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast that teaches about entrepreneurship by exploring the history of the web and talking with some of the web's most impactful innovators. I'm your host. My name is Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University, and I study the history of what I like to call language technologies, which I'll explain more about and what that actually means on this very special episode of Webmasters. But first, before doing that, I'm going to pause for a moment and thank our sponsor. Webmasters is brought to you thanks in part to the very generous support of our partner and sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that specializes in helping people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and other types of digital assets. What do I mean by that? Well, it includes e-commerce stores, SaaS apps, content websites, domain portfolios, Amazon FBAs, and pretty much any other online work from home or really work from anywhere type of internet business you can think of. If it's a business you can operate online, the Latonas team can help you figure out how to sell it. They're passionate about internet businesses and helping support internet entrepreneurs, which of course is why they're so incredibly supportive of this podcast and the Webmasters project. So if you're trying to sell an internet business you've built, or if you're interested in buying an internet business and want to see what's available, head on over to the Latonas website and find out more. It's latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. Earlier, you might have heard me describe this as a very special episode of Webmasters. and. Maybe that description is actually more so for me and my excitement over who I was getting to interview and what we wound up talking about. You see, Katarina Fake is a very well-known name in the entrepreneurial community as a result of what she built, what she's invested in, and who she's mentored. As a longtime geeky internet entrepreneur, honestly, getting a chance to speak with her was, well, 
pretty cool. I've, I've been following her work for a long time. However, that same popularity made producing this podcast episode a little challenging. You see, Katerina's story and the story of Flickr is pretty easy to come by. In fact, I've even listened to multiple podcasts where Katerina shares it. So I, I kind of wanted to do something different in my conversation with her. And that's what you're about to hear. We talked a lot about the internet and the web and the implications of a site like Flickr, but very little of our conversation had anything to do with the actual story of Flickr. So let me go ahead and give you that story very quickly. And honestly, if you want more detail, just Google it, okay? All right, the story of Flickr basically goes like this. In the early 2000s, Katerina Fake is in Vancouver working alongside an entrepreneur named Stuart Butterfield, who at the time also happened to be her husband. If his name is familiar to you, that's because he'd go on to become the founder of Slack. But before that, Katerina and Stuart were focused on developing a massively multiplayer online game called Game Never Ending. Ironically, Game Never Ending, well, never really got off the ground. However, the chat feature of the game included the ability to easily share photos, and it turned out users really, really, really liked that. Ultimately, the company pivoted and started building Flickr, giving people all over the world the ability to easily upload, store, and share photos. It was, at the time, revolutionary. Before Flickr, you just really didn't post your photos online. That was, that was crazy. Flickr got super popular super quickly. That created a logistical problem for the company. Hosting all those digital photos in the early 2000s was expensive. So when Yahoo came along and offered to buy Flickr for, and by the way, reports on this vary, somewhere between 20 and $30 million, Katerina and Stuart take the money and continue growing Flickr inside of Yahoo for the next few years, where it gets even bigger, actually a, a lot bigger. At its peak, it had well over 100 million registrations users and hosted billions of images. What matters most in this story, aside from, by the way, the very important entrepreneurial lesson around pivoting to focus on what users wanted, is that Flickr is basically the poster child for a pivotal moment in internet history. It ushered in the transition from what was known as Web 1.0 to Web 2.0. Of course, a lot of the distinction between Web 1.0 and Web 2.0 was marketing-driven rather than representative of any true change in technology. The dot-com crash of the early 2000s left a bad taste for the web in the mouths of a lot of people, and Web 2.0 was a way of saying, hey, we've moved on to something new. That something new was represented by Flickr and sites like it. Specifically, Flickr helped usher in the age of user-generated content. Rather than site editors being responsible for everything on a website, its users could post content themselves and share it with other users. That at the time was considered truly revolutionary and Flickr was at the forefront of that revolution. Okay, so now that I've given you the three-minute version of the Flickr story, I want to spend the rest of this episode focusing on how revolutionary it was. Or perhaps more precisely, how Flickr and Web 2.0 in general maybe aren't actually very revolutionary at all. Because the funny thing, of course, is that user-generated content was nothing new. In fact, user-generated content was popular in niche communities long before the World Wide Web. And those were the communities Katerina was passionate about 
even before she'd ever thought about building Flickr. I started out on the internet as a lover of the internet, basically, and a lover of internet communities. And I was a child of the Reagan 80s. And so I spent a lot of time on zines looking for my people. And then the internet came and, of course, was able to connect me to all of the other peculiar folks that I was seeking as a somewhat nerdy kid who grew up in a football and cheerleader town. And so I found the internet to be this wonderful place that I could actually find people when I think it's especially important for people who feel slightly different from the people that are around them and to truly find your tribe. This has both positive and negative consequences as we had eventually seen. But I mean, I think that in many ways, it was just this incredible world that opened up, especially if you lived in a kind of a small and somewhat sheltered town as I did. You heard Katarina reference zines and zine culture. We've bumped into the same phenomenon a few times here on Webmasters. For example, you might remember it from Webmasters episode number 40 with Stephanie Simon, who created Feed Magazine, one of the first true internet publications. It came in part from her appreciation of zines. For our purposes here, I describe zines as basically user-generated print magazines for building communities around shared interests. Contrasting them to today, if someone is a big fan of, say, Star Trek, the person can launch a fan website or Facebook group to share that interest with other similarly passionate people. But pre-web, the way people accomplished the same basic thing was by publishing their own small batch homemade mini magazines and literally mailing them to subscribers around the world. It wasn't the most efficient process, but it accomplished a similar goal, which was building and supporting communities of people around shared interests. And zine culture also had a huge impact on Katarina's interest in distributed communities. I was a huge fan of Fact Sheet 5. Are you familiar with Fact Sheet 5? Admittedly, I was not aware of Fact Sheet 5 before Katarina mentioned it. I've since done a bit of research and can share that with you. Fact Sheet 5 was kind of like a catalog of zines. Maybe let's call it the Google for zines. In other words, if you liked zines, how are you going to find more of them? Well, you subscribe to Fact Sheet 5, and it was the connective tissue between zines that showed you what other zines you might also like to subscribe to. Make sense? All right, back to Katarina's explanation. So Fact Sheet 5, you should become aware of because it was the proto-internet before the internet. It was the zine of zines. And there's a guy named Mike Gunderloy, who I believe lives on a farm now in Vermont, who had actually a very early website too. But Fact Sheet 5 for me and for other suburban kids was a way of finding all of these zines on all kinds of different subjects. I was a correspondent with some comic book artists who were just like photocopying their comic books. For example, Julie Doucette, who did the Dirty Plot, now very well-known comic book artist from Montreal. She was writing entirely in French, but somehow I found her in my zine catalog. There were like a thousand art magazines. Cory Doctorow, who was one of the early editors of Boing Boing, he was a huge proponent of the zine. And I believe he had named his original website Crap Hound after a clip art zine that I also loved and used to send away for from Factsheet 5, which was basically just amazing clip art that somebody had assembled into a zine. And this was like all proto-internet in print. 
What you're hearing Katerina describe is an example of how people from distributed geographic areas around the world connected with each other based on their shared interests before the internet made that process really easy. So, you know, now you might have a Facebook feed filled with messages from different groups and communities of people all around the world, or you might spend hours browsing different subreddits related to your interests, again, with people from everywhere. But before the web, you subscribed to a zine, or yeah, at least some people did. I'd be lying if I described zine culture as mainstream, but in a way that's actually kind of the important thing to note. The power of the internet, at least from a social perspective, is its ability to make distributed communities possible in ways they simply weren't pre-internet. Meaning the social media-driven world we currently live in is a world of zine culture scaled to an almost absurd extreme. It's an extreme that's become so absurd, in fact, that Katerina thinks people are at the point of wanting to reject it. I think a lot of this is coming full circle again. And a lot of people are resisting the lure of putting things online where ideas get absorbed, chewed up, spat out, and then kind of passed over on the internet in this way that no longer allows, for example, seamless, I would call it, after Brian Eno to happen. Um, seamless is this idea that a group of people, and it's a small group of people, and sometimes it's just like 30 people in, I don't know, the downtown Lower East Side of New York get together in this kind of country bluegrass CBGB's kind of dive bar and invent punk music. Initially, it starts out as 200 people who come to these shows and start playing instruments and kind of making music. But without that period of six months or a year or two years of incubation, these things can't really happen anymore. And the internet tends to chew, consume, spit out, and kind of destroy these nexuses of seniors, I would call them, which I think is what we used to have in things like Fact Sheet 5 and these smaller zine-like contained groups. Are we truly coming full circle, or is it just that a small countercultural community of people are looking for a different type of connective experience? Who knows? So let's focus on the interesting thing we do know, which is that the biggest trends in history usually begin as countercultural phenomena, including, by the way, the internet itself. The social internet, highlighted by the World Wide Web, was not at all mainstream in its earliest days. And it was this countercultural environment that Katerina was first introduced to and fell in love with because it reminded her so much of zine culture. But of course, enhanced and expanded in incredible ways. The way that I got onto the internet was actually, I was very fortunate to be at Vassar College, which had a mainframe computer called the Vaxar. And what was amazing was that we had a connectivity, and this is in the late 80s, early 90s, um, to our actual dorm rooms. And so you could plug in your Mac SE into the internet and you were suddenly on the World Wide Web as it was nascent in those days. And I think I graduated in 1991. And then in 1993, I was actually in a temp job at the IT department at Columbia University. And one of the guys that worked there brought me over and he said, here's this thing. And he showed me basically what was Mosaic Browser. 
which is a way of basically doing all the stuff which I was doing line by line, like writing kind of in Unix. And just was frankly kind of mind blowing. Like it could like serve images, which was kind of an amazing thing without this like super complicated command line stuff that you had to do previously. And so I was on Usenet, I was on Archie, Waze, all of these super early technologies to surf around. I was on a bunch of BBSs, bulletin boards. I was on Panics out of New York. Or was I surfing around? And then when I was at Vassar, I found this amazing Usenet group of, I was really into Borges, Jorge Luis Borges at the time. And I found this amazing group of Borges scholars who had posted all the stuff on Borges in Aarhus, Denmark. And it was just kind of mind blowing to me that I could connect with and read the papers of and correspond with these people who are also interested in Borges in Denmark. And that was just phenomenal. You know, I was a kid who always really was interested in pen pals. I always had pen pals when I was a young girl. And um, I had a pen pal who I corresponded with for a really long time in the Philippines and another one in Jamaica. And I just love this idea of communicating with people in very different worlds and very different cultures. And this experience with the Borges scholars in Denmark was truly mind-blowing to me. So I was just hooked. After that, I was like, I love this thing. If you're going to talk about Borges, I feel like I need to at least mention the Library of Babel. It's an essay I always have students read when they take my social marketing course. I'd love to get your thoughts on its relation to the, let's say, modern internet. I mean, all of his stuff was basically about containing the infinite. It was basically about the Elf or like, you know, the Library of Babel had every possible book in it. Hold on a second, I realize I should probably clarify my own question here. Turns out Katerina is a bit of a literary nerd, and well, in case you haven't figured it out, I kind of am too. But I realize not everyone is well-versed in Jorge Luis Borges, so let me provide a touch of context. Borges was an Argentinian author, essayist, and philosopher. His work is known to be, let's say, a bit out there. He creates extreme fiction-esque scenarios meant to help readers see the world in different ways. The example I referenced here and am discussing with Katerina is a short story called The Library of Babel. First published in 1941, its narrator tells of a universe consisting of a seemingly infinite number of hexagonal rooms connected to one another and containing every version of a 410-page book that would exist when combining the standard letters and punctuation marks of the alphabet. In other words, the vast majority of those books would be utter gibberish. But among the billions and billions and billions of possible combinations would be, for example, the complete works of Shakespeare, or even technically a perfect transcript of this podcast episode. But would you be able to find any of that? Based on sheer volume of content, no, you wouldn't. The story is an allegory of sorts exploring the idea of the existence of infinite knowledge, but how that knowledge is concealed from us mere mortals. So anyway, that's Borges in the Library of Babel, and here again is Katerina reflecting on its relationship to the internet. All of these dreams of infinite knowledge obviously preceded the actual creation of the internet. I mean, I think it's a very powerful desire. and. There's kind of efforts to do this. I think librarians from time immemorial were seeking to build this, you know, even in, is it the Iliad, where they have the shield of Achilles that has all of the occurrences of the world animated on 
the shield of Achilles. Like it, it just goes on and on. There's all of these efforts to do that. So yeah, I would say that I'm definitely an archivist. And this is probably what led me to internet consumer level platform development. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, here I am building what was actually kind of an infinite catalog of the world, you know, photographic record of all things. So it kind of makes sense. Interesting. So you're interested primarily in archiving. Is is that safe to say? That's a safe assertion. Kind of like knowledge storage. If you were to see the room that I'm actually in, I just love books. <laughs> so I kind of love the archive. I admit I, I kind of assumed the person who created the world's first huge photo sharing app would be interested in, well, photography. But I guess, is that not the case? No, I'm not interested in photography in particular. I'm interested in the archive. I'm interested in the record. I love the fact that official archives, museums, you know, NASA, would upload all of their archives actually onto Flickr and were basically providing it free and searchable and allowing people to tag it and make it searchable through metadata in order to share all of that knowledge. So when you're looking for a photo of a planet, it's just amazing, like all of the stuff that was on there. I don't know, like Mesopotamian tablets. Like, it's just amazing. So it just became this very beautiful archive of knowledge in a visual sense. Well, this is one of the great ironies of the web and a site like Flickr. It, it creates essentially a library of Babel, right? We think we're creating these huge, seemingly infinite repositories of memory and storage, which makes us feel like we can know everything. But actually, the opposite happens. There's so much stuff that we actually make it harder to know things. It's obfuscation as a result of mass collective memory. You know, whenever I lose something, like my keys, <laughs> you know, or something, or gosh, where's my scarf? The answer is not to buy another scarf. The answer is actually to throw away five things, actually. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, get rid of more things so that you have less things to search through in order to find the thing that you're looking for. So I think that there's a similar phenomenon at work actually. If you can't find something, it's because you have too many of the things. It reminds me a lot of the, let's call it, fear-mongering about the internet in the early 2000s. A lot of people were saying the internet represented this huge paradigm shift for humans because, of course, historically, storage systems like books and archives were, were really expensive to create and maintain. So human culture was built around the ability to basically forget things. But the internet gave us infinite memory, and we'd have to learn to live in a world where, for example, the things we posted on social media in high school would still haunt us when we're 70. To some extent, we see examples of this, but on the whole, this, this doesn't seem to be the result, at least not to me. The internet hasn't really led to perfect memory, right? I had this long conversation once. I was being interviewed after the, I think it was after the Yahoo acquisition of Flickr by Quentin Hardy. And I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a technology journalist and he was writing for the New York Times at the time. He's kind of switched and gone to various publications over time. But we were having this conversation and I was talking about memory. I was talking about the archive, basically, and how Flickr behaves as an archive. And I said, there's this Chinese saying, and it says, you know, the palest ink is better than the strongest memory. That if you can record something, it's much easier to remember it. But that's only one aspect of memory and what we were seeking for, actually, which I think in some ways people are trying to replicate with like, here's the thing that happened in 2015 to you. And they kind of show you your photographs again from that era is more of a kind of a, a Proustian memory 
an evocative kind of memory, a buried memory, the things that you have actually forgotten or lost spirit that the world used to contain for you, which it no longer does. And so that is another completely different way of looking at memory. And there probably should be different names for it. But that kind of memory is incredibly difficult to build into software, just the way that software works, the way it is designed. And so I do think that this is the ideal and the unachievable ideal of these kinds of archives is to somehow replicate and or stimulate in people the Proustian form of memory. Are you familiar with the book Archive Fever by Derrida? Yeah, yeah, I have that right here. All right, Katerina has her copy of Archive Fever handy, but just in case you don't, let me explain. Archive Fever is a book by another philosopher, this one a French philosopher named Jacques Derrida. It was published in 1995, and to vastly oversimplify, it's about how archiving, storing lots and lots and lots of information, is the strategy humans use in our universal struggle against what famed psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud calls the death drive. The death drive is basically the absolute certainty that, on some time scale, everything any of us ever do in this universe will ultimately amount to absolutely nothing. It will all be destroyed, it'll all die. Kind of depressing, huh? But anyway, archive fever and archiving information is how humans cope. We store all the things that are important to us and that we learn in order to pass all that knowledge along to future generations. So even though we all eventually die, human culture at a broader scale remains. Or as Katerina puts it, Cheat death. You're trying to cheat death and frankly it can't be cheated. No, death can't be cheated. But that doesn't stop us from trying, and that's why I asked Katerina if she was familiar with Archive Fever. And that's why I'm talking with you about it too. You see, this podcast is ostensibly a podcast about the internet and the World Wide Web. They are digital technologies that, among other things, help humans communicate with each other in order to share vital, and in plenty of cases, not so vital, cultural information. In other words, the kind of stuff that helps us preserve human culture across generations. That's a really important job of the internet, and it's a really important part of what sites like Flickr have helped helped people do. And here's the thing, they are by no means the first technologies to address this particular problem. Before the World Wide Web, we had books, and before books, we had chiseled language on clay tablets, and before even written language, we had oral poetry, and before oral poetry, we had grunts and growls and gnarls and other types of proto-language for communicating and conveying information. And that's actually the point I'm trying to make. The core technology we should care about isn't the internet, the core technology is language. Sure, most of us don't think about language as a technology, but that's what it is. Language is a technology for storing and transmitting information across generations. We just tend to forget that because humans have been using the technology and developing it for thousands of years. Instead, we focus on things like the web or the printing press or manuscripts or stone tablets or whatever, but those are just tools that make the dissemination of language more efficient. 
At least, that's what I believe. And that's what interests me about a site like Flickr specifically, and more broadly about the transition it represents in the larger context of human history. When Web 2.0 became a thing, when Flickr catalyzed the trend of people posting their own content online, it fundamentally changed archiving. Instead of archiving being done by a small number of people, people like librarians, in this digital world dominated by user-generated content, everyone has become a sort of archivist. So what does that mean for the world? How does the world change when everyone can digitally remember anything? I lost a laptop, a laptop hard drive crashed. And this was way before the cloud solved this, quote unquote, solved this problem. And I lost all of 1999 and 2000, I think, of my life, my digital life, right? Like all my emails, all my photos, everything that had been on there. And after my initial sense of loss and grief, I actually felt quite liberated from it. And, you know, it's funny because obviously for many years, I've been uploading things to Flickr as well. And I do not think that if I were to turn it off, I would be particularly sad about it because I do believe in the virtues of forgetting. And I do believe in the virtues of a Proustian memory. And I do believe in the limitations of photography as a trigger to memory. So it sounds like you're saying digital memory isn't really the same as real memory. If that's true, what are we posting online if not preserving real memories? Well, I mean, one of the things actually that I think is a significant part of the Flickr story is that it had originally started off as a form of communication. A photograph was a form of communication. And Flickr emerged from, it was a completely separate property, but we were had been designing a game. And then the game had this chat feature and you could drop photographs into this conversation. So we actually like took this idea of this chat in which you could drop photos into, which at the time you couldn't really do in ICQ or AIM or any of the predominant chat products. And so this wasn't a thing that you could do, but you could actually communicate with other people using photographs. So it was like a form of connection. It was a, what Yuri Engström, my partner would call a social object it was a thing that you could exchange and it was like another form of communication. In many ways, it was easy to communicate things through a visual language. And so I think that this was one of the reasons for and means behind, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is one of the motivations behind building Flickr was that it was more communicative rather than archival. Archival was incidental because after you put a series of these communications, so to speak, onto Flickr, then it becomes an archive just by its very nature, by staying there, by not being erased. And so I think that that was secondary. I think the primary thing was actually contained in that somewhat yucky word, photo sharing. Then the problem isn't so much memory, right? It sounds like the problem is the sharing of memories. Is that the issue? I mean, I think there's a kind of a tragic aspect. I really dislike this, actually. I wrote a blog post once about this. I call it social peacocking. Like, it's all presentation and self-presentation. I hate that. And I'm a kind of an amateur Jungian. And people are basically erasing their shadow. And doesn't anybody realize what a dangerous thing that is to do? And frankly, a horrid way that is to live your life as this kind of half of a human being. There's a really wonderful essay, actually, by Ursula Le Guin called The Shadow about the Hans Christian Andersen book. If you haven't read that, you need to read that. It's just, it's so great. It's basically Instagram 
I think that in many ways, Flickr was very different from Instagram in that we didn't have filters. You couldn't improve yourself, your, your self-works and all. It wasn't necessarily a place for beautification and self-presentation and the highlights reel of your life, which is eventually what those websites became. And, you know, it's funny that I read somewhere like Instagram is what you get when you have a generation of people who are raised whose main imagery was advertising they have seen throughout their lives. And so we do come from an earlier era. And we do come from an earlier kind of version of reality, which was not so self-improving as today's is. And frankly, a lot less competitive, a lot less precarious. Your life was a little bit less dependent on appearing a certain way or being a certain person or being from a certain background, like a hyper-educated background like me and Mark Zuckerberg. And so I understand why you would want to, in this world that we now live in, accentuate the positive, as it were, and live that way. But in many ways, it's a diminishment of your humanity. As someone who helped give millions of people the ability to easily post and share their photos, their their memories online, did Flickr then kind of cause this diminishment of our humanity? I do not think that it really had it in it. You know, there was no liking. You can favorite things and save them, but it was more of a bookmarking function to save it for later. Because like on Instagram, what do you do? You go to the notifications tab and look at how many people have liked it. Those likes are very um, intoxicating. They're designed that way. I mean, they're designed to convey attention towards yourself. All these sort of unintended consequences come out of that. So then it's not the sharing of content that's problematic so much as, I guess you'd say, the reward mechanisms around what's being shared. Are you arguing that the rewards on social media and the gamifying elements, things Flickr didn't have, Are the things creating the wrong motivations and popularizing the wrong kinds of content? Definitely, definitely. You know, it's interesting because I came from a hatred of television is actually how I became interested in the internet because I hated it. I hated it because only the stupidest things were on television. And I hated the fact that when I was growing up, there was only White Snake. (laughs) you know like only the very crappiest music was available to you on television (laughs) on tv or wherever it was in general someone else was choosing for you and so this idea of this emergent media you could dial into wherever it was that you wanted to be that you could not be beholden to some media mogul's vision of what it was that you should be watching or listening to was extremely liberating. And, you know, this democratization of media, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things that we believed in those days were extremely utopian and did not end up coming to pass. But I do think that you have to be an incredibly disciplined internet user to replicate it, but you could. You could go back to the independent web as it was originally created and just live there. It would take an extreme amount of effort to shut out everything else, all of the kind of platformization and algorithmic recommendations and all the hashtagification and all of the social memification. Like you just, you would have to resist all of that and be like a pure being. It would be like almost a religious practice to exclude all of the noise and the morass of nothing that is surrounding you. It would have to be like a monastic kind of internet usage, but you could get back there. It'd be amazing. 
It'd be great. An internet that didn't curate for you. Imagine that. An internet that just gave you access to everything and let you explore whatever and wherever you were interested in exploring. I admit it seems compelling, but I also find myself wondering if you'd ever be able to find anything truly valuable. On one hand, whatever you did find might be meaningful because the discovery was organic. On the other hand, without all the algorithms and gamification curating content for all of us, I kind of wonder if you would have ever found, well, this podcast episode. I'm guessing you wouldn't have just randomly stumbled onto it in the vast sea of online content. And at least to me, that's a bad thing. I hope you agree. And if you do, I hope you'll consider sharing this episode and the entire Webmaster series with a friend so you can help other people find us too. I want to thank Katerina Fake for taking the time to speak with us and share not so much the story of Flickr, but her thoughts about the internet and digital culture at large. I hope you found the conversation as interesting and fascinating as me. If you did and you'd like to know what she's up to these days, be sure to find her on Twitter. She's at Katerina. This podcast is on Twitter too, at Webmasters Pod. Feel free to send us any thoughts or comments you've got about the episode or reach out to me directly. I'm at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. You can also find lots more content about startups and entrepreneurship over on my website. It's AaronDinan.com. A quick thanks to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for pulling together the episode. And another thanks to our sponsor, Latonas, for their support. If you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, the best way to start the process is by pointing your browser to Latonas.com. Similarly, the best way to get more great episodes of Webmasters is to point your podcasting app toward the Webmasters page and press the big old subscribe button. That's going to make sure you get the next episode we've got coming for you soon. Until then, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye.